Let's call attention to some of the words that we just sang. The last stanza says, you will be safe, protected by the Lord, by his control. I want you to keep that in mind as we turn to 1 Samuel 23. We have in this passage another opportunity to see the control of God over all things. I'll be reading and preaching from verses 27 to the end of the chapter, but I'll back up to verse 24 to set the context. So they, that's Saul and his army, so they arose and went to Ziph before Saul, excuse me, that's David and his his men. Uh, But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they escaped that place, so they called that place the Rock of Escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds at Engedi. I recently preached a sermon that I titled, God Reigns Over Tyrants. That was a sermon about King Saul and how he had abused his position and his power and really had abused the law of God in his bloodthirsty pursuit of David. And yet, God reigned over that tyrant. He reigned over King Saul. This passage follows that theme of the sovereignty of God over all things. This time it gives us an opportunity to address how God rules really over all of history. It's not just that he he rules in a way that spiritually brings salvation to you, which which is true, but his sovereignty goes much further. Now give us an opportunity to address how the sovereignty of God serves to nurture your faithfulness to the Lord, a boldness to serve the Lord, following after him, even though there are many things that cause anxiety in today's world. We do face a lot of threats all around around us. The future looks very bleak in our country and in many places around the world. There are wars and rumors of war, conflict that threatens to engulf the entirety of of the nations of the earth. We face heavy economic pressures that make you maybe worry about how you'll provide for yourself and for your children in the next next years. And maybe most distressing, our country seems to be descending more and more into a deep divide spiritually and philosophically. You face more and more of a possibility of of coming into ridicule because of your faith in Jesus Christ. 
ridicule and worse. The climate of our country is such that you may face pressure in your place of work, pressure from your families or your friends or your community to get in step with where our society is going. There's a very real possibility that you will face even some kind of persecution. Come what may, you need to hear the message of this text, that the Lord is on his throne, that he rules over history. Because of that, you may persevere in faith by serving God and his people while waiting on the Lord's chosen time for deliverance. We're going to begin by considering just the text, and as I've done recently in a historical text like this, there are things that need explanation. I've titled this point of the sermon, The History of Slippery Rock. Anyone from Pennsylvania may may wonder if I'm talking about the little town of Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, but I'm not. Uh, I went and looked to see what the origin of that, uh, uh, why they named their, their town Slippery Rock, and it It has nothing to do with the Bible. It has to do with rocks in a stream that were slippery. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) But I'm going to wait to tell you why slippery rock until I get get to that point in the text. So uh, for the kids, listen as I come down to why David named the mountain slippery rock. You'll understand why I've titled it this. Well, by now you should be familiar with the path that this history is going to take because Saul is is like a dog returning to his old paths. He bears down relentlessly in his pursuit of David. He is intent to catch him and to kill him. We've noted before, how that has led him to even shirk other responsibilities that he has as a ruler of the nation. But this time, David has the help of the Ziphites, those countrymen of David's own family, his cousins, where David was currently hiding. And they went to Saul and they said, we know where David is. Follow us and we'll lead him to you. We'll give him into your hands. And so Saul mobilized his forces. He moved into the region of the little town of Ziph. And he followed their directions to try to find David. And with that intel and with that, the size of Saul's force, he comes closer and closer to catching David. So much so that the text describes David hiding on one side of the mountain and Saul approaching on the other. If this were a modern movie, this would be a very dramatic point in the movie. You'd be with David over here, and as he turns to look on his left, here come the enemy soldiers around one side of the mountain. And the music swells as he turns and he looks on this side, and here come other soldiers around the other side of the mountain. And as verse 26 says, Saul and his men were encircling David. The movie would make it out to be very dramatic at this point. 
but this is no movie. This is real life. How could David escape at this point? Their lives were forfeit. Surely they would be caught, and surely they would face certain death at the hands of Saul. But just when it looks like this would be the end for David, a messenger comes to Saul with news that the Philistines are attacking again. The Philistines are invading. And this time, Saul does not shirk his duty. Saul sets aside his vendetta against David, and he went to fight the Philistines that had invaded. And David escaped. And to commemorate this deliverance, David named that place the Rock of Escape. Literally, it's the Rock of Smoothness or the Rock of Slipperiness. We even talk about sometimes if you get away from something, you might say, well, he slipped out of their grasps. So in the margin in your Bible, you might write slippery rock by the rock of escape. So that's literally what it means. It's a slippery rock where David slipped away out of the hands of Saul. But he slipped away not because he was smart, not because he had a tactical advantage, not because he had better intel, not because he was lucky. He slipped away because God delivered him. And because God exerts his power over all things, even history itself. And this leads us to consider God's providence, how God rules over history. And it will lead us to consider David's faith under fire. In turning now to think of God's providence at work, I have to admit that we don't often see God's hand so clearly at work in our lives. As he was coming in this morning, Bob was telling me about his providence, God's providential care for him in matters that were concerning uh, uh, his life and his health. And it was just wonderful to hear him recognizing God working in his life in the providence of things that were happening. And in this case, it is such a clear display of God ruling over all things that it gives us this opportunity to pause and to note the sovereign power of God who rules over all of history. I'm going to give you five kind of quick bullet points and expand on them a little, uh, on a, a few of them a little bit. But I want you to see this idea of God's ruling over history. And that's the first bullet point is that God rules over history. And I say that because there are times in which we are thinking that God's, God's hand is at work only in spiritual matters. 
He is the one who brings salvation to, to, to sinners. But the Bible is clear, and this passage calls to attention that God rules over history, not just the hearts of mankind in salvation. It isn't a mere coincidence here that the Philistines have invaded at just this particular moment to cause Saul to turn back. This is the providence of God ruling over all things. Like Psalm 121 said, that it is by his power that these things take place. God rules over history. Secondly, God rules over the actions of wicked men. We saw this in God's rule over tyrants. Once more, we can just reflect that we tend to think of God providing all of the good things that happen. But when something bad happens, our tendency is to say, well, that was outside of God's control or God's purpose. I'll say in a moment how terrifying that view of history is. Let me just assert here that God does indeed overrule the actions even of wicked men. In this case, God did use the invasion of a wicked enemy nation to change the heart of a wicked, uh, a wicked ruler, King Saul. He overruled those evil intentions for a good purpose, which is point three. The God rules in order to accomplish his purposes for his people. He delivered David in this case. The actions of the Philistines, the withdrawal of Saul, all served to this great and glorious purpose, that, Saul, that David would escape. That he would slip away out of the hands of Saul. And why would God do that? Well, because God had covenanted that David would be a king, a man after his own heart, that David would, would lead Israel in the way a king was designed by God to rule over his people. And we know already that David was only a faulty shadow of another king that would come. And this was also the promise of God, that the king truly after his own heart, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer that is promised from the very beginning of Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ who had come and crushed the head of the serpent, Satan. The Lord Jesus Christ who would be the ark that would deliver us from the wrath of God against sin. The Lord Jesus Christ who is the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb that causes God to pass over and redeem us. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king over us. And so God ruled over the intentions of Saul and used the evil plots of the Philistines in order to deliver David. This helps us then in understanding that God is not evil in controlling evil things. Rather, his goodness comes through. His goodness comes through and that he, that he does indeed overrule 
the evil for his own good and glorious purposes. Which leads us to point four. We don't always know what God's purposes are. This can be hard to understand. For David, we've already noticed that he did something good in delivering the city of Keilah, and then he has to run from Saul. It's as if, as if he did something good and he was punished for it. You could almost come to that conclusion. It's hard to understand when suffering takes place in our lives, and we're assured that God is a good God and that he is controlling all things. But in the context of asserting that God is sovereign over all things, the question often arises, if God is all-powerful and if God is good, why would he allow such evil things to occur? And at face value, that's a hard question to answer. We don't know the mind of God. We don't know his purposes. But by faith, we can see that he can and he has acted throughout all of history. We can see that he has indeed overruled the wicked to bring about good and glorious purposes. And that's where this text comes in to show us that. And even the crucifixion of Christ was part of God's glorious plan. It was his glorious plan that the son would lay down his life so as to defeat Satan and sin and death and in order to bring many children to glory. It is by that foreordained, foreknown purpose of God that the worst crime in all of history was perpetuated. But we don't always know and we don't always understand why God allows evil in the world. But we can say that if God does not rule over all things, then he would not be God. If there's something outside of the realm of his power and his knowledge and his purposes, then he is not all-powerful. And that is a truly frightening conclusion to come to. There could be something outside of God's power and of his direction. Quite honestly, if he does not control, control all things, then he cannot be God. And if there is no God, then things that happen in this world cannot be even judged as good or evil. They just happen. And that's honestly where you have to conclude the path that that leads to. There is no God. There is no meaning in life. And it's fascinating that God has implanted in us a desire to know why. 
Why is this happening? Why are there these tragedies that go on in the world? And in the hardness of our heart, we can use that question to turn against God and to reject him, all without seeing the devastating consequences of that argument. And I would urge you that if you've wrestled with that question, and maybe you're wrestling with that today, that that you would follow where that path leads to its logical conclusion that if bad things happen outside of God's control, that there is no reason for them whatsoever. And all you can say is that is that well that's all you can say isn't it why well there's no answer to that question it just happened shut up and die it leads to a very dark place it leads to despair A despair of hope, a despair of life, a despair of goodness, a despair over happiness. We believe that God controls all things. Why? Well, we don't always know. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to say to God, why... Do the righteous suffer? Why have you brought this into my life now? Why is this happening? The Psalms are full of that question, even wrenched out of the agony of our lives. But it's okay to ask that question of God and to rest sometimes in ignorance to rest by saying, I don't know the answer to this question, but I trust that the Lord reigns over all of history. He does sit on his throne, directing all things to come, come to pass. And he does that for his own purposes and for his own glory. Today, if you face a future that is unclear, if you fear what is around the corner, if the troubles on the horizon make you want to run and hide, remember, remember that the Lord reigns and there's no one who can push him off of his throne. Run to him and pray that the Lord would strengthen your faith under fire, which is what David did, which is the fifth point The one purpose for suffering, then, is to test and to purify the faith of God's people. And I'm going to expand this in the third outline, in outline, uh, faith under fire. If this were a PowerPoint, it would focus on the fifth point and then it would expand into uh, into this next third point because it deserves this attention. And this is where the understanding of the providence of God comes to exhortation to our lives. Faith under fire. 
what would David do now? I asked that last week. In a sense, I've been asking that all through the messages of 1 Samuel. What will David do in this context? I directed your attention especially to how Jonathan went last week. And he encouraged David as a friend encourages one who is struggling. He strengthened his hand in God. So it was that even as David continued under fire, under that relentless persecution of Saul, that, that David's faith clung to the promises of God. Was it difficult? Of course it was. You don't commemorate a place of your deliverance with this type of name, the rock of escape, unless it was hard. This was no vacation destination for David. But by faith, David could say, God led me to this place. And God delivered me from Saul. It is by faith that he could grasp that the Lord was providentially ruling over all of this. And if he providentially delivered him physically, he could hope as well that this same great God could providentially deliver him from his sins. And it's in this context that David wrote Psalm 54, and I'll remind you of the psalm meditation that I gave last week on, on this. Because it's in, in this context that David prays in the midst of a very difficult providence. Oh God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. And I hope you remember that in that psalm that he prays, specifically against those who were coming against him, those who were trying to catch him and to kill him. And he stands in stark contrast to King Saul. You might remember that Saul dared to invoke the Lord's name in his evil plans. He prayed that God would bless his desire to go against the Lord's anointed David, and we'll expand on this next week when David restrains his hand against the Lord's anointed. But David submits his cause to the Lord. It's an act of faith. It's an act of looking to a God who does indeed rule over all things. For if he doesn't, why pray? Why indeed would you ever cry out to the Lord unless he was able to deliver? But David's prayer also submits to God in that he knows what God has revealed. God had revealed that he had chosen David to serve as king over Israel. And so David submits his cause to the Lord, and he bases his prayer on that revealed will of God and cries out, and he acknowledges that God is his helper. 
It says, uh, David says in Psalm 54, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. And then when delivered, he praised the Lord for his goodness. In fact, it appears that David likely wrote this psalm even before God had delivered him. It comes out in the title to this psalm. It appears that that in the midst of his distress that the Lord's Spirit was moving David to think about the promises of God, to proclaim them in the midst of that adversity. And as a prophet of God, to speak these things that say that he was confident that the Lord would indeed deliver him, even before that had happened. Hebrews says that we walk by faith, not by sight. And David does that exactly here. Again, based on the promises of God, that revealed will of the Lord, he could know that it is God's will that he would serve as king and that since that hadn't happened, that the Lord must somehow deliver him in a way that was was unlooked for. And in that expression of faith, David thanked God even before the answer came. And this is faith under fire, is it not? To take shelter under the providential hand of an almighty God. History has demonstrated this over and over again. We could see it uh, described throughout Scripture and explained in some places where it's made clear that this is by the hand of God. The early church knew what the cost of discipleship was. They were often persecuted. They were literally hunted down and thrown in prison. They were stoned. They were crucified. They were fed to lions all because they followed after Christ. Or think of more modern examples. The communist regimes around the world often have persecuted the Christians. They do just the same thing. They have made the church illegal. They've made it against the law to follow after Christ. They make it a crime that's punishable by prison and by torture or by death. And yet the church around the world under persecution remains faithful because they know that God is on his throne. Because they know that he is worthy of our devotion, even if it costs our lives. They remain faithful, persevering in faith, as the commentator Philip says, persevering in faith, serving God and his people while waiting for the Lord's chosen time of deliverance. Whether that be an unlooked-for, this-worldly deliverance like David experienced here, or whether it be release from the persecutions of this world to be welcomed into God's presence through our own deaths, Those deliverances are the Lord's. And this is nothing less than what Jesus says throughout his own ministry. He calls you to take up your cross to follow after him. And that's not a vacation destination either, is it? 
you won't find that online, the, uh, the destination cross-bearing for your vacation this summer. But that's the destination Christ calls you to. To take up your cross daily and to follow after him. And he says, in the Beatitudes of all places, in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you for my name's sake. Blessed. And he speaks to the seven churches in Asia in Revelations 2 and 3. You can read those on your own. In them he warns of the same suffering that is coming upon the church. That was that early church's experience that I described before. But in warning also beckons. And he tells of the deliverance that he would work in his own chosen time. And he tells of the blessing that they would receive if they would persevere in faith. To them, or to him who overcomes, says Jesus, I will give some of the hidden manna. To him who overcomes, I will give power over the nations. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And I say the same to you. Jesus calls you to take up your cross and follow after him. He warns you so that you would not be surprised. And he beckons you, reminding you of the blessing of following after him. No matter what, no matter what this world may do, there is nothing that can separate you from Christ. The future may give you anxiety. For that matter, you may be afraid today. You may think of yourself encircled by enemies, facing an economic disaster, being pressured in your work to get in line with the new doctrines. You may be facing a sickness or a disease unto death today that you've just come to know of. Your faith is under fire. But our Lord God still sits on his throne. Our Lord God reigns over all of these fears, over all of these things that assault you. So hear what Christ says to the church under persecution in Revelation 2. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. 
May the Lord who reigns over all things give you peace to follow after him, to serve him diligently and faithfully, come what may, waiting on him to deliver in his chosen time. Let's pray. Oh God, there are many things that make us afraid. We suffer anxiety and loneliness and despair. We suffer the intentional hatred and persecution of your enemies. We suffer the weakness of our bodies. Oh God, in the midst of our suffering, be with us and remind us of your almighty rule over all things. And as we glimpse, as we catch a glimpse that you are indeed reigning on your throne forever and ever, may that strengthen us in our faith to follow after you today and tomorrow and the next day and the next. Oh God, help us to overcome based on those promises and the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. close by singing Psalm 54b. That's our Psalm of the Month. Remember that this is that Psalm that David wrote in this context. Let's stand and sing it together, Psalm 54b.